0: Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Shortly after the rise of the Puritan movement in England and America, a movement known as the German Pietist arose in mainland Europe. Out of this group, came the group that is now known as the Moravians. Like their English counterparts, the German pietists were particularly interested in personal holiness and having a robust pursuit of knowing God. One of the leaders of the pietists was a man named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. His adherence to holiness and the pursuit of an intimate relationship with Jesus influenced Wesley in the d- development of Wesleyan theology, which, of course, led to the Methodist Church. However, the thing many remember him for than anything, more than anything else is a short and pithy little phrase. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. This little sentence is perhaps the most beautiful prescription for the Christian we are not called to be concerned about our brand, concerned about the number of bodies that we have in church, to be concerned about what car we drive or how cool we are or whether or not we have the right friends. We are called to preach the gospel at all times, in all places, and in all places. We are called to go out and make disciples and bring them into a covenant of with Christ Christ. Through baptism, we are called to share with our friends, our neighbors, and loved ones what Christ is doing in our lives, what He has done in our lives. We are called to show how we are redeemed from sin, how He is drawing us away from those things which destroy our souls, how Christ has washed us clean from the sin which we are born with, how Christ has healed us from our deepest pains and drawn us into our deepest joys. We are called to unashamedly share our lives, to show the ways in which Christ has healed us and is healing us, to show the love of Christ to those in our community that so need his love. Unless Christ returns, we will all face death. Now, Count Zinzendorf is not saying, forget about your loved ones who have died, He's not saying that you need not mourn their loss. So please don't hear that. Rather, his sentiment so wonder, is so wonderfully summarized by Rich Mullins, the faithful and thoughtfully sincere early 90s Christian singer, when he wrote, "My life is motivated, if my life is motivated by my ambition to leave a legacy, what I'll probably leave is a legacy of ambition. But if my life is motivated by the power of the Spirit in me, if I live with the indwelling of Christ, if I allow his presence to guide my actions, to guide my motives, those sorts of things, that is the only time I think we leave a truly great legacy. In other words, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Our call is that when we go to our eternal rest, that we are forgotten not because we are forgettable, but because Christ is so important in us and to us that all else fades in our life. Instead of being motivated by the self, we're motivated by a deep desire to glorify God in all we do. Instead of being motivated by getting so much treasure in the here and now, that we store our treasure up in eternity. We make our concern for the things that are eternal. I remember for some time, developing one's own brand was rather popular sentiment. Most peculiarly, I found it amongst pastors. People wanted to show off who they were as individuals and make sure everything was presented perfectly in a unique picture. My occasionally scruffy beard gives away that I was not part of that. This also, though, was troubling. Yesterday, as I was wrapping up the class that I attended this past week, I was chatting with the professor. Sadly, I think this is the last class that I will have with him. As we lamented this, I jokingly asked if he would survive without me blurting out random thoughts in the midst of his lecture. He said that he suspected someone else would fill that hole for me. (laughs) But it was then that I remembered this thing that was a great comfort to me. The church doesn't need me. I need the church, but not the other way around. That is to say, your salvation, your spiritual growth, your sanctification does not depend upon me, but it depends on Christ and Christ alone. Yes, I am called to point you to Christ over and over and over again. I'm called to remind you of who he is. I am called to exhort you to repentance when you have sinned, and to comfort you when you are wounded. I'm called to encourage and strengthen, admonish and direct. But the reality is, Christ can use whomever he pleases to accomplish this but how grateful I am that I get to do this. But still, I, remem- it is al- I must ultimately remember that it is Christ working in you. Now you may be wondering why I took off half of my clothes. Thank you for laughing at that. But it's to show you the traditional liturgical way in which we do things. It is thoughtfully oriented to point us back to the fact that it is Christ that works. And so for the priest, my vestments should keep me humble. Our first layer, the cassock, is black, and it reminds me that I am spiritually dead, that without Christ, apart from God's grace, I have no life in me. And then, when I'm getting ready, I put on the surplice, which is obviously white, And it reminds me how, washed in the blood of Christ, I am made pure. Therefore, it is Christ's pureness, not my own. And finally, the scarf or tippet, or when we're doing Holy Communion, the stole, which I put on as a reminder of the authority that is borrowed. It reminds me of the yoke of Christ that we as priests have the authority to preach, teach, exhort, and administer the sacraments. But that authority comes only from Christ. My friends, while I have authority in this church and the church, it is not my own authority, but Christ's. It is borrowed. I am to use it as a servant but we are all called to live a life of self-giving, of death to self. We have, put on such emphasis, we have put such an emphasis on making a mark and a difference of finding our true calling that we sometimes forget that all of our callings is to let our light shine wherever God has placed us. If you are here this morning, you are here by the grace of God. You are here because God brought you here. God does not move us in and God does in fact move us in and out of things. But I've spent an incredible amount of time comforting young Christians who feel lost because they can't articulate their own calling. Our calling, if you are if you are followers of Christ, is to glorify him. Your calling if you are not yet a follower of Christ is to let him minister to you to let his mercy envelop you so that we, you may join with all of us in glorifying him and loving others as he loved us first. Yes, he may call you to some great task that will shape the world, or he may simply call you to be a good husband or a good wife or a good brother or a good sister or a good friend or a good parent or simply a good child. But let us first be concerned with loving him and loving others as he first loved us. The Magi present for us such a calling. The lore and thoughts around them is seemingly unendless. For example, we do not know how many there were. The Western tradition tells us that there were three. And this is a fine number, for there were three gifts. But there could have been two or a hundred and two though the fact that they all went into a Middle Eastern house makes that latter number rather unlikely. All we know is that the Magi are plural in the text, so there could have been many. In fact, the Eastern Church disagrees with the West and settles on 12 Magi to be parallel with the 12 tribes of Israel. This, too, is a fine number as three, but unprovable. Next, we know very little about whom they were, Some tell us that they were kings. In fact, we hear names from time to time of Gaspar, Melchor, and Balthasar. Each of these men were legendary kings from India, Persia, and Arabia. And while they certainly came from the east, nothing suggests that they were actually these men that visited the infant Jesus, or even that they were kings. But the term magi is particularly interesting, for it does, in fact, give us a hint who these men were. They were probably a special class of people in the ancient Near East who were interested in religion and lore and had a hearty pursuit of wisdom, who were something like a combination of a pagan priest and the local wise man, having given their life to study of the ways that the world of the world and also given to lend, leading local religious ceremonies. This does seem to be the most likely explanation, as that would have meant that they could have been exposed to those things outside of their region. And having seen that Jesus' star knew that something amazing had happened in Bethlehem. Ultimately, we get lost when we get anxious about who these men were, the point of the story is not that Gaspar, Melchor, or Balthazar, or for that matter, Joe, Frank, and Bob, took a long story, story, journey together. The point is, these men who were not Jesus, Jewish recognized that God had been born amongst his people, and they came to worship him. And here we get a hint that the Magi knew who, that Christ was more than a man. For they came to worship Jesus, King of the Jews. When we confront those who deny the divinity of Christ, this is a place that they often get stuck. We might say to them, but look, the wise men came to worship Jesus. To which they respond, but they shouldn't have. In fact, in their minds, the wise men are not heroes as the faith as we see them. But anti-heroes, they do not believe that the wise men show us the way to life as we believe, but rather towards death. There is an error in their thought here. First, scripture makes perfectly clear that these men did in fact worship Jesus. There is no other way to read the text. Secondly, when when worship is wrongly prescribed in the word of God, We see this in particularly with angels. The text tells us that it is wrong to worship those things. Tells us not to worship angels. No, we worship the one true God who is triune in form and whose second person became incarnate in the Lord. No, it was not wrong for the Magi to worship Jesus. And if it was, we would know. Rather, they were wise, anonymous forerunners. They tell us that it is good and right to worship Jesus as our God, and that we know from later revelation in Scripture as our Savior. And now let us compare Herod and the religious leaders of Jerusalem's reaction to the news of the birth of Jesus with that of the Magi. Herod, and all of Jerusalem with him, was troubled. But the Magi rejoiced. It was exceedingly great joy when God revealed the place of the house, the place in the house which Jesus was. was. What is our reaction when new visit, new people visit the church? What is our reaction to the opportunity to love? upon someone who is destitute, to love the migrant, to the one who is not like us, but so desperately needs to know the love of Christ. Has it occurred to us that these people might be angels, sent for us to have an opportunity to minister to them, as the author of Hebrews says? That these people are the image of Christ, whom we have the opportunity to show his love to. My friends, you so often do a beautiful job of welcoming those who are unknown into our worship. But sometimes I have grown distressed when I look out and I see a new person sitting alone. One day I looked out and a man was sitting, who was here for the first time, was sitting alone. And it almost appeared that he had the plague. He sat alone in a pew and no one was in the pews around him. I do know at other times you are amazing at welcoming strangers in amongst us. And I know you how lo- your profound love. But let us become even better at loving the stranger. Let us not be afraid of him or her. For yes, we live in scary times. We live in times of deep hate and distrust. But we cannot combine, combat hate with more hate but only with the divine love of Christ, the sacrificial love that Christ has for us. And so let us greet every person who enters into this building with or into our life with his love. Someone posted this this past year of the three rules of engagements that her husband and her have for new people in church. First, an alone person in our gathering that is, their worship service, is an emergency. Second, friends can wait. Third, introduce a newcomer to someone else. My friends, please, if you see someone alone, even if church has started, even if it's halfway through, get up. I know it's awkward, but walk over to them. Introduce yourself quietly and ask them if you may sit with them. I have chosen churches because someone did that for me. I pray that the love of Christ abounds all the more within our community. May we rejoice so greatly to meet a new person. But here is the second question the Magi and Herod pose for us. To follow Christ is a calling to continually die to ourselves. Here is the place where I struggle too. When Christ calls us into deeper intimacy calls us to death to ourself, calls us to leave behind some idol of our heart, and beckons us into something more deep and more profound with him? Are we troubled, like Herod, or do we explode forth with the joy of the Magi? When Christ calls us to live in a place of deeper faith, may we rejoice and not be dismayed. May our hearts cry out with joy and not trouble for how good it is to know Christ. For meeting Christ and being drawn into a relationship with Him, we are called sometimes to be ill at ease with the status quo, to be ill at ease with the world and anxious for the ways of the world to return to the way it will be in the great recreation. T.S. Eliot summarizes this Christian tension we often feel in our growth in Christ in his poem that he wrote for Epiphany. It is written from the view of one of the wise men sometime after their great journey to worship Christ. The wise man contemplates to himself, all this was a long time ago. I remember, and I would do it again. But set down, this set down, This, were we led all the way for, birth or death? There was birth, certainly, but we had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they very different. This birth was a hard and bitter agony for us. Like death, our death, we returned to our palaces, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease. Here in the old dispensation, with alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad for another death. Christ's birth in our hearts calls us to shake up our lives, to shake up our old dead gods of paganism and worldliness. Calls us to live deeply and profoundly, an in intimate lives with Christ and with all the people God of God. Our lives should not reflect the culture around us, but we should be transformed people. We should be a community that God's love abounds within. And the wise men, though undoubtedly deeply educated, lacked the formal training of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And in this, we are reminded to not trust in our heritage or upbringing. We are called to trust in Christ alone. Too often as Anglicans, we are prone to say, well, I was a cradle Episcopalian, as though it brought us some status. It is good to have run the race faithfully, to have never turned our back on Christ. But we are not saved because we have attended church for our whole lives. No, we are saved because we are in Christ's covenant with us because we have a deep and intimate relationship with Him, because every day we die to ourselves and are born again in Him. My friends, I am so thankful for the witnesses of those of you who have not veered from the path of Christ that has laid before you, that have walked a life that glorifies God from birth until this very moment. Your witness is so beautiful. But trust not in your witness, but in Christ and Christ alone. We see in the text that the ones who show true faith in Christ were the foreigners, were the outsiders, were, well, the insiders schemed and were troubled by the news. So too, I am thankful for those who have lived rough lives, who have stumbled and fell hard, and Christ came in and radically changed their lives and hearts. I remember I was talking to a friend who had lived that rough life and met Christ in jail. He confessed to me that now as a pastor, he often felt intimidated in clergy gatherings because of his past. And yet, he knew Christ. He knew his power in such a profound way, a way that many of us can barely imagine. Because he knew how damaging sin was, He knew both Christ and sin intimately. So let us rejoice when the prostitute, the criminal, and the drug addict come to know Christ, not judging from for who they were, but rejoicing with exceedingly, with great joy for what Christ has done. Let us not take for granted our lives because we were born in Christian homes but take Christ's saving grace as our own and imbibe richly in that daily. The wise men finally arrive at the house where Mary and the child are, and they worship the child and lay gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And here again, the wise men point us to the fact that the child was more than a kind little baby lying in the arms of his mother. an inter- Or an interesting child, No, my friends, Christ is King and God. Both the fact that they worshipped him and brought him gifts point us to this again and again. For gold, frankincense, and myrrh are gifts fit for an incarnate God. They are gifts for the one true God who is amongst us. It is easy for us to grow popular lore around these wise men. But the reality is they call us to live lives of faith. They set for us an example of Count Zinfendorf's call, that we may preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. For they saw an amazing thing happen, set out in faith, and were among the first to worship the incarnate God, were obedient to God, and went home, and since history has more or less forgotten them the great evangelical Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle summarizes this perfectly. He writes, the conduct of the wise men described in this chapter is a splendid example of of spiritual diligence. What trouble it must have cost them to travel from their homes to the house where Jesus was born. How many weary miles they must have journeyed. The fatigue of an Eastern tra- traveler are far greater than an Eng- we in England can understand, or even more so in our age. The time that such a journey must occupy necessarily would have been great. The dangers to have encountered were neither few nor small, but none of these moved them. They set their hearts on seeing him that was born king of the Jews. They never rested until they saw him. They proved to us the truth of the old saying, where there is a will, there is a way. It would do us well as professing Christians if they were more ready, if we more readily followed the, the wise men's examples. Where is our self-denial? What pains do we take about our souls? What diligence do we set forth about following Christ What does our religion cost us? These are serious questions, and they deserve serious answers. My beloved friends, I know that most of us are likely to be concerned about our legacy, to be concerned with the mark that we leave on this world. And I would be lying if I told you that I was not. I too care and can find myself lost in all those wrong questions. Am I liked? Do they want me around? Am I even good enough? Am I capable of building a church? And what about my reputation? If we grow consumed with worldly questions, we lose this call to diligence, this call to death to ourselves in life and to life in Christ. May instead we live as the Magi, as Count Zinzendorf, of Rich Mullins, and of J.C. Ryle, all lived out their lives, and do, and in doing so called us to live. May we preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten, that we leave not a legacy of self, but that all might be drawn unto Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.